Okay, here we go. November 28, 2010, lecture discussion number 25 on the book of Romans. You might notice that I do not have a uh, dry erase board up here today because today is one of those awful days you always get in class. I was talking to Jonas about it earlier. Um, there's no way I can get anybody to do the assigned reading. I've never been able to do it in all the years I have taught. And... Uh, I know it's not going to change now, so what's the solution to that? If you won't read it, what do I have to do? I have to read it with you and force you to read it, and that's what we'll be doing today. Uh, Unfortunately, I know it's just plain difficult, but still it's so valuable. Okay, to the shock of all, did I say November 28, 2010, lecture discussion number 25 on the book of Romans? Okay, to the shock of almost everyone... We arrived at and we blasted away at Romans chapter 3 last Sunday. And, of course, we didn't so much produce a bit. We didn't get very far. Maybe we scratched it, but probably we didn't even do that. So, we got to take another run at it, a little engine that could and all that stuff, and fire away some more. And perhaps when we're done, and I hope this is the case, and I know what the sermon says, because obviously I wrote it, and I'm hoping that the clearing of the smoke and haze will occur Uh, But perhaps it won't, and that's okay. We'll just keep going after it until sooner or later you begin to put it together yourselves. That is my goal, as you know, is to get you to put it together yourselves. I can put it together. I did it. It's there. It's on the podium. But I'm going to intentionally leave pieces out of it so that you begin to say, wait a minute, that fits here. Instead of just delivering it to you on a plate, which I know is of no value ultimately to you, I want you to begin to start to think like what? That's right, think like me. That's the whole goal here. I'm only half kidding about that. (laughs) Really, the truth is, is I want you to think like the Jewish people whom God used to write the scriptures because they don't think like us. They are very interwoven, intricate thinkers in the sense, the ones that wrote this, they're constantly, and God used them for that reason uh, purposely. He wanted his Bible, his word to be um, interconnected in such a way that you knew it was him. And that is how it is written, and that's what I want you to begin to do. Now, for those who are absent, and we have a lot absent again today because it lands on a holiday weekend, as well as uh, those of you who are unable to get through the, um, what I call, drooling sleepy time. And, and I look, I know that this is not for the, the typical church. This is difficult material, difficultly delivered. And, and statistically, the statisticians, they figured out that 90% of you are asleep at any given time during the sermon. And I know that. And I used to take it personally, and I used to throw erasers. I did. It was my favorite thing. I had a chalk eraser when I taught school, and I would throw it and strike them. I tried to hit them in the face. That was my goal. And it would hit, and it would spray the chalk all over them, and that what I considered a great day when that happened. And, of course, they always felt guilty because they were fast asleep and now covered with chalk, and so what did they do? little dummies that they are, they would feel bad and they would bring me back the chalk eraser. (laughs) So now I could throw it again. And of course, I rubbed it full of chalk waiting for the next one. And that's absolutely the truth. People don't believe I actually threw things at the students in my class, but there's some of them here and they will tell you I did. 
And I never got caught. <laughs> okay, there's just Katrina. <laughs> but you know I really did it, didn't you? Yeah. And I, I always... <laughs> and occasionally I got called in about it and I said, well, you could criticize me and fire me as a teacher if I missed them. But I was, you know, very accurate. I was quite proud of that particular reputation. It was amazingly valuable. Anyway, I know it's tough. I know drooly, drooly and sleepy time is going to happen. And that's just the way it is. And today is going to be one of those days. I hope to make it as good as I can. But I'm going to uh, have a substantial review, not because I'm worried about you not getting it so much as I know how important it is to make sure that people who aren't here or people that are now listening by the Internet, as you know, by the hundreds now, maybe even thousands of them out there, far exceed us. Dear those of you listening by the hundreds on the Internet, we are very, very small here. In Anchorage, Alaska, very small. You outnumber us greatly. You should send us pizza. <laughs> you should. I keep mentioning it because it needs to start happening. Um, somebody enterprisingly should figure that out. But uh, my point is, is that I really am trying to get as many people to start this chapter correctly. This is Romans chapter 3. You've got to start it correctly. It is more complex than you can imagine, and we've got to, as I said, get everybody together, moving together. The challenge, of course, is to do this rephrasing, this uh, 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 review type thing, to do it in a way that you who attend every Sunday um, are completely unaware that that's what I'm doing, which, of course, sounds difficult, but it's really not, because I'm what? I am a highly trained professional. And it's really quite effortless for me to render the audience completely unaware of what I'm doing. Don't try that yourself. That's really funny. And I got one person to laugh in the front row, which is where you have to sit from now on. I have a note here. A subtle joke. Please, someone laugh. Now I get to put Kathy right there. You do. You cannot have a pumpkin roll because what? There aren't any pumpkin rolls. Sorry. None. Don't look for them. Okay. Anyway, we shall undertake the gleanings process. That's what we're doing. We went through the field the first time. We grabbed everything that was obvious. We knocked a bunch of stuff down. And now we're going to go through and pick our way through it. What we harvested last Sunday, and hopefully by doing so, everyone is going to be ready to take on the difficulties of Romans 3, 9 through 20. And you may remember that I closed with Romans 3, 9 through 20. I didn't quite get to it as far as I thought, which is always the case, but I closed with it. And I hope you remember, if nothing else, you remember there is none righteous, no, not one. None righteous, no, not one. If you memorize one verse in the Bible, this is the one. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seek after God. Those are Davidic Psalms, by the way. We'll get into that in a minute. Romans 3, 9 through 20 says that. And, of course, you've got to reconcile that with another verse in the Bible, specifically Romans 2, 7. 2, 7 says the other thing. It says you seek after God. Hebrews eleven six says seek after God. And there's Romans three eleven saying there is none that seek after God. So how do you put those together? Just right out of the gate, we've got to uh, 
take that on to the superficial, shallow student of Scripture, that's going to seem contradictory to you, but it certainly is not. They're not contradictory, of course, but so many fail to understand how they're not. And once again, you just have to know this one thing, one thing. What do you have to know? Jesus Christ is omniscient God in the flesh. He's the I am, and he is the creator of, and he is outside of time, space, matter, and energy. You have to know that God is outside of time, that Jesus Christ is outside of time. If you don't know that, then you're going to think that 3.11 of Romans and 11.6 of Hebrews. One says, none seek. The other one exhorts us to seek. The same with Romans 2.7. You'll think, well, those... Those, are, those don't fit. Well, they do fit. But it is an omniscience of God issue, which means that you have to recognize that he is, excuse me, the creator of and outside of time. And all outside of the entire created order. Can the created order uh, contain him? How big is God? How big is the created order? Is the created order infinite? No. How do I know that? Only God is infinite. Okay, more on that later. You may also, as I said, remember that we are heading into the, into the Davidic or the David written Psalms in order to understand Romans 3, 9 through 20. Paul quotes David. He quotes Psalm 14, 2, 139, 4, 144, 53, 3, and also Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. And we gotta know why. And he puts them together. He takes pieces of them and puts them together. We have to know why Paul selected those psalms to, to justify his thesis statement of the chapter 3 of Romans, which is the first verse. Not justify, but to argue for. So why did he do it? Why does he quote those psalms? We've got to know why he did it. And then we've got to know what else. Why David wrote them. Why did David write, there is none that seek after God, no, not one? And then there's the parable of the denarius that we uh, kind of went through quickly. Some would call it the parable of the laborers, but I don't believe that's accurate. I think it is the parable of the denarius, Matthew 21 through 16. And we touched on that last Sunday as well, and I hope you remember that I consider the question of Matthew 21 through 16 and the question of Romans 3.1 to be the same question. Romans 3.1 is the first question. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? I think that is the same question as what is asked in the parable of the denarius in Matthew 21 through 16. Same question. And Romans 3.1 is the thesis statement, so to speak, of Romans chapter 3. And as I was trying to say, Paul poses that question. He asks that question. What advantage then has the Jew... And then he uses the Psalms of David to answer his question. Okay? That's what's going on. Now, that means that you cannot understand Romans chapter 3 unless what? Unless you know your Psalms. So, unless you know your David stories. What's the most famous David story? You would argue David and Goliath, and I would agree with you. But that's not the most famous, famous David story. What is it? David and Bathsheba, where he murders an honorable man, one of the mighty men of David. In the list of the honored mighty men of David, David murders him to get his wife. 
And then he writes, there is none good. There is none that seek after God. So, okay, let's reread all this together. So open up your textbooks. If you don't have a textbook, uh, raise your hand. We'd be happy to get you one. If you don't want one, never raise your hand here unless you're after a pumpkin roll, which there is none. So we're going to read it together. Why am I reading it with you? Because you won't read it by yourself. That's just how it is. I taught math. I would assign reading. I would say to all the kids, okay, we're going to do sets 15 through 25. Everyone tonight, read that section. Did anyone read it ever? Just Katrina. (laughs) And Katrina ended up being what? A math major. There you go. (laughs) Okay, Romans 3, 1 through 20. Let's just pound our way through it. I think you're going to find it very exciting when we're all done tonight, and I certainly hope so. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? He's asking this because he just finished telling them there's no difference between an uncircumcised Gentile who believes in Christ and a circumcised Jew in the sense that God will judge them the same, in the sense that he will judge only on the aspect of Christ, and there is no value in physical circumcision. Circumcision is really a spiritual inward belief in the grace and the blood of Christ. So what is the advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision, is how he begins chapter 3. Much in every way, he says. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. In other words, the Jews got the the scriptures. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? There's a very good question. How many people believe that God exists? Does that change the fact that God exists? I'm sorry, I said it badly. How many people don't believe God exists? Does that change the fact that God exists? God is unaffected by our belief. Uh, any church, by the way, that ever tells you that you were not healed or you were not, you did not get some special whatever because you didn't believe enough is in great conflict with Scripture. Christ does not need our faith. What's the purpose of our faith? That's your question eventually. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? If you were here last week, you'll know what he's raising is this issue. If my sin reveals God's great glory and love, then why am I judged as a sinner? Because what I am doing is is glorifying God through my sin because he does what with my sin? He forgives it. So my sin, therefore, becomes of value to God in the sense that it reveals him as loving and and glorified. That's the argument that you get all the time here. So therefore, we should do what? What do they say? 
We should go sin forever, do all kinds of sin, and therefore we can't be judged because God's being revealed as good and glorified through it. Right? That's the argument that he knows is out there. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and some affirm we say their condemnation is just. So he immediately doesn't deal with whether or not it's even possible for that kind of thought process to have any value or merit to it. He just uh, dismisses it and says the condemnation of the people who think that way is just. Okay, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. By the way, who's we in this question? For we have previously charged both Jews and, the, and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now, here comes this powerful portion that I'm reading it again just so that you will know it's here and deal with it yourself. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have become... They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who wrote that? David wrote that. Why did he write it? Got to know. Can't solve Romans 3 without it. You can't solve Romans 3, you can't solve Matthew 20. Can't solve Matthew 20, can't solve Matthew 19. And you're stuck. Now, verse 19 of Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Remember, that's the Jews who have the oracles of God. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. You are not and cannot ever be saved by your own obedience to a set of law or rules. You cannot. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be saved. And man, that, that's powerful stuff. What advantage then has the Jew? Much in every way. So what's the advantage of the Jew? He has the oracles of God. He has the scriptures. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seek after God. There is none who does good, no, not one. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be saved. So any of you who think, misguidedly, that you're going to save yourself, or that you're going to follow a set of good little rules that you have, and that somehow... That's going to save you. Somebody is going to say, you're a good person. You act nicely. You do good things. And therefore, you're saved. Therefore, by the deeds, no flesh shall be saved. Okay, so you got that foremost in your thoughts now. And I put it there on purpose or tried to. Now we've got to go forward and read the parable of the Denarius. And again, I know there's a lot of reading today. Hard to listen to it. I get it. But you get used to it, because in order to understand a little, it's required that you read a lot.
when it comes to Scripture. To be truthful, to figure out the parable of the denarius, it's necessary to know the parable of the rich young ruler, which I started to say. And that, of course, is the uh, eye of the, or I'm sorry, the camel trying to go through the eye of the needle, which you're all familiar with. And I don't know if you've studied much of that, but if you have, you will know that the response when Christ tells them, he tells them that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the apostles, uh, disciples respond, they were astonished by that. Rich people should be saved easy is how they were thinking. That's how their culture was. And he's saying that it is, it is impossible for a man to save himself. They ask Christ, who then can be saved? And Christ looks at them and says, with men it's impossible. Same as the law, you cannot be saved. You cannot save yourself. There is no effort. There is nothing you can do. You want to go to church? You want to be baptized? You want to take communion? You want to do all of that? None of those acts save you. What saves you? Belief saves you. Faith saves you. Without belief, without faith, all the things you do, worthless. He even tells you, the works of man are what? Filth. You have to have the belief system. What good is being circumcised if you don't believe in what the symbol of circumcision means and who it is of? It's impossible for man to save himself. You can't put a camel through an eye of a needle. Only God can save. It's hopeless to try to save yourself. Okay? So therefore, all of that saying, once you understand that a rich man can't be saved, a camel can't go through an eye of a needle, a man can't, it's impossible for a man to save himself, then you are where in the Bible? You are in Romans 1.17, or Habakkuk, if you will, Habakkuk 2.4, which is what? Yes, the saved shall have eternal life by belief, or how it said in those scriptures, the just or the justified shall live by faith. Okay? Hopefully you're starting to put all that together. Okay, now... Here we are, the parable. Christ, God himself, gives this parable. After he tells them about what's going to happen with regard to salvation, after he tells them what they're going to do with regard to judgment, because uh, they ask the same question. We have followed you. We have done everything you said to do. And yet we can't get saved. Almost the exact same question that Paul raises in Romans. What profit of it, what advantage do you have to being a Jew? You've got the Scriptures. The apostles asked the same question in Matthew just before this parable. Why are we following you? What advantage did it give us? There is no advantage to having the Scriptures. There's no advantage to being circumcised. There's no advantage to going through catechism or I can't think of the Lutheran one now off the top of my head. You go through this thing. No Lutherans here besides... Yeah, I can't remember either. But you go through all this stuff. Does it save you? No. I love to go to the churches where they wear uniforms. I've always wanted to have little cliffside uniforms. That'd be cool. We'd all come in. we have a little uniform. I like the hats. I wanted swords. 
I wanted all that stuff. I thought that would be neat. Would the, would the uniform save you? No. None of the little ordinances or whatever saves you. Belief saves you. That's the point of this, all of this. Now, here we go. Matthew 20, 1 through 16. This is more interesting in the sense it's easier to read because you're in the story. Find yourself. For the kingdom, this is Jesus Christ. This is God. Let me start verse 30. That's more appropriate, 1930. But many... Who are first will be last, and the last first. If you look down there on verse 16, it said, For the last will be first, and the first last. You will see that this is bookended, if you will, bracketed with that phrase. The first will be last, and the last first. That's how he does this parable. He puts it in these parentheses. So that tells you the parable explains that verse, if you will. Okay, 21. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour. As soon as you see the third hour, what time is that? We're in Hebrew time, by the way, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. The third hour is three hours from 6 a.m. That would make it what? 9 a.m. in the morning. As soon as you see 9 o'clock hour time or Roman time, what do you think? Boy, that should just go whap, 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 whap. God does not say things like the third hour. There are no insignificant elements in a, in a parable given by God. There's no insignificant elements in all of Scripture. Okay, we'll keep moving. And he went out about the third hour. Wow. You should be stunned by that. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard. And whatever is right, I will give you. Now, what's this about? Start thinking. What is this about? He's saying, God is saying, okay, the kingdom of heaven is a lot like a guy who owns a vineyard. And he goes and he gets people at six in the morning and he sends them into his vineyard and he agrees upon a denarius and everybody goes to work. And then he comes back at nine o'clock and he gets more people. This is what king, what, what heaven is like. So they went. And again, verse 5, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, what are you asking now? If you're into the story, why does he keep going back hiring people? How many people are at the marketplace? By the way, why are they at the marketplace? Yeah, they're waiting to be hired. He went down to the local job corps and he got day laborers, didn't he? And he came back and he got him three hours later. Then he got him three hours later. Then he got him three hours later. And about the 11th hour, what time is it if it's the 11th hour? 5 p.m. Now, so he's hiring a bunch of people. He went out and found others standing. I'm sorry. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? Why have they been standing there idle all day? 
They were waiting to get a job. And did they know he knew that? They were standing there idle all day. He knew they were standing there idle all day. How did he know that? Because he's been there all day, and they've always been there. Why didn't he hire them at six in the morning? Why did he come back and hire them? They obviously saw people hired at six in the morning. They saw people hired at nine in the morning. They saw people hired at noon. They saw people hired at the ninth hour, which is what time? 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Wow. Okay. And so he asks him, why have you been standing here all day? Does he know? When God asks a question, who's, who's, who's he asking it for? He's not asking it for them. or I'm sorry, he's not asking it for himself. He's omniscient. He's asking it for us and them. They said to him, because no one hired us. You and Iris, and nobody else did either. Because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when everyone had, I'm sorry, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, some of you will have foremen, call the laborers and give them their wage, beginning with the last to the first. And when those, and some of you will have wages, by the way, and it's just wage. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they were each given, they were each, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give... This last man, the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called but few chosen. And I want you to note that for many are called but few chosen. That is a solemn warning, and it shows up also at Matthew twenty-two fourteen with the wedding garment. A guy shows up at a wedding feast, and he has the wrong garment on, and what does God do? He grabs him, and he throws him into the lake of fire, utter darkness, gnashing and wailing of teeth, and it ends the same way. Many are called, but few chosen. So it's necessary now that we've got to compare the denarius with the wedding garment. Do you think the wedding garment and the denarius are the same thing? Yeah, they are. So what are they? Feel free to go read the wedding garment thing on your own, Matthew 22, while, whilst I move along. Okay. What do we got here? And we kind of sort of touched on it last week. We did not do it justice, as is always the case. 
I never do anything in Scripture justice. I can't. I'm not pos- not possible for me to do that. It's God's word. Duh. Best I can do is get something right, maybe. And if I do, that's that's him doing it, and I'm just being part of the machinery. Okay, the parable of the denarius is firstly explaining this very difficult saying of Christ. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And you could see that it is because the first word of 20, verse 1, is for. He says that difficult saying, and then he goes, for the kingdom of heaven. So it's all explaining that difficult saying. That's what this parable is about. That what the denarius is about is explaining that saying. How is it that the first will be last and the last first? Okay, so we have the obvious question then. What's the obvious question? But many who are first will be last and the last first. What's the obvious question? The obvious question is, who is these people? Who is the first? By the way, if you're going to be in a group, do you want to be in the first group or do you want to be in the last group? We all want to be in the last group. I hope you do. It ain't working out so good for that first group. So who is the first and who is the last? And notice immediately we find a group that he even calls the firsts, right? So we have this group, they're called the firsts. Who are they? Who are the firsts? They are the firsts that were put into the vineyard. Now what's their characteristics? What do they say? What do they want? How does God respond to them? What does God say about them? Then, of course, as I always like to say, find your own bad self in the story. Are you in the story? Where are you? Who are you? Which group are you in? You in a group. Which one? You might be surprised to find out which group you're in. I hope you're thinking that you're not in the bad group. And you may not be. I hope you're not. But I find a lot of people who come to church are in a bad group that has a problem. I've had many of them come here. They don't stay long. They don't like what I say. They go find a church where they all think they're in the good group. Who says I don't do applicational sermons? Anyway, obviously, Jesus Christ, the I Am, the Word made flesh, the Ancient of Days, the Lord God Almighty, He's also in the story. He's who? He's the owner. He's the guy that owns everything. Okay? Last Sunday, I began to make the case that the denarius, the payment is his blood. It's the blood and flesh of Jesus Christ. And that makes it the only blood, the only flesh, the only source of life that there is anywhere. I don't have living blood. You do not have living blood. Our blood is dying and going into corruption. We need a blood transfusion. He is the only one that has living blood, blood that will live eternally. He's the only one that has living flesh. It's the only one source that exists. It's pure. It's eternal. It's infinite life blood. Okay? That's what the denarius is. That's what you get if you agree to go into the vineyard. But I'm getting too far ahead. I want you to notice something about the owner. What does the owner do? 
Six in the morning. Some of you went to Black Friday. What time did you get up? Four in the morning? Did you see me there? You did not see me there. I've done it. And then as I was explaining, I figured out that if you wait till Wednesday of the following week, the prices are lower. So I, I figured that out after about two or three times through. There's a couple of things you can get, but you're never going to get those. There's some lady that's got devices on her cartwheels, you know, little knives that stick out. You're not going to be her. It's not even worth it. Let her have it. It's not worth anything anyway. And again, they'll drop the prices in a couple of days when all the suckers have got all the other stuff. I learned that, by the way, at the uh, auction as a kid. I wanted a sofa. I ever tell you my sofa auction story? If you say this, I'll stop. No, because I'm not, I only have so many stories. I don't take stories off the www.desperatepastor.com places. Chicken soup for the church and all that nonsense. But anyway, I wanted a couch, and there was a couch at the auction. And it was a gold couch. It was exactly what I wanted. It went with my green carpet. It was beautiful. Along with my orange lamps, my pink paint job. Anyway, I wanted it. And so there it was. And I was waiting. I'm going to wait for my couch. I'm going to get it really cheap. Because you know you get it cheaper at an auction than you can at, say, Costco, right? No, you couldn't. But I'm a dumb kid. And so there it comes. And I'm bidding. And it went to $100. I'm willing to pay 150 for my couch. $100. Okay, 150 Okay, oh, that's where I'm going to go. 150 I'll stop right there. Ooh, 160 The other guy went 160 Okay, I'll go 165 I'm here. I got it. I want the couch. 165 Ooh, 170 Okay, will I go 175 Never occurs to me that I'm bidding against two. That's right. The person that owns the auction house, right? And so finally, I get the couch for 180 and I'm pretty happy because I have defeated that man who I didn't know owned the building and the auction house. And what's the first thing he says? He said, $180 sold to the dumb, funny-looking kid with weird glasses. And then he said the classic statement, who else wants one? I got 200 of them in the back. So the goal is to get you to buy it, you know, bid it up, get you to buy it. And then he sells all the others for the same money. Who wants 180 bucks? He's got a bunch of $50 couches that he's selling for $180. That's the lesson. That, by the way, is the Black Friday lesson. Put it together. You'll figure it out. Okay. Obvious question. What does the owner do at 6 in the morning? He gets up and he seeks after who? Laborers. Who is the owner? It's God himself. Obvious questions. Why does God seek after laborers for what he owns? Why does he do that? Does he need us? Why does God seek laborers to work in his field? Why? You've got to work yourself through that. Does he need you, me, us? The obvious answer is no, he doesn't need us. So why does he seek? God seeks. God gets up and seeks. Why am I repeating the word seeks? 
because of the Vedic songs. None seek after God, no, not one. God seeks after us. Why does God seek after us? He doesn't need laborers. What's his purpose? What is the laborers, what are they doing? It's revelatory, isn't it? It reveals his goodness. Okay, he gets up six in the morning, goes down to the market seeking people to work in a vineyard that he doesn't need any help with. And he does it, and then he comes back. He comes back at the third hour. That's a crucifixion timeline reference, isn't it? What happens at the third hour at nine o'clock in the morning? The owner is doing what? At nine o'clock in the morning on crucifixion day. He is on the cross at nine o'clock, isn't he? What happens at this between the sixth and the ninth hours? Darkness happens then. What happens at the ninth hour? That's when he gives up his life, right? See that timeline. That timeline is repeated in here for us. There's a reason. We won't get to it today. We'll have to get to it soon so we can get it. Anyway, you, you, you have to recognize that the crucifixion timeline references are in there. And you're going to have to compare them side by side to Matthew 20. Now, at 6 a.m., Jesus Christ, the owner, goes to the marketplace and hires the firsts. And an agreement is required. He's got to have an agreement. What's the agreement? You go work in the vineyard, I give you one denarius. I'll give you my blood. What's the vineyard, by the way? Why are they going to a vineyard? Why aren't they going to a field? Cornfield, but it's not. It's a great vineyard. And then at nine o'clock, Christ comes back to the market, goes to the market again. Six o'clock, he gets the first, then he goes again and he sees others there. And he sends the others. Obvious question who are the others and why are they standing idle? But the big difference is the first group got a lot, they had an agreement. The second group, no agreement. Did you notice that? No agreement. No agreement is made. They're going to receive what? What did they receive? What did it say? Whatever's right. Whatever's right, I will give it to you. Whatever's right, I give you. And what do they do? Yeah, why didn't they ask for an agreement? Why didn't they say, hey, you got to have that right, baby? You need have a writing. We've got a shop steward over here. And he says, why do you got to go in order? We've got a seniority system. How come no agreement? They just went. They didn't know what they were going to get. They just went. What they were going to get was something what? It was right. They were going to get something that was good. And they went believing that they would receive what is right. You see that? I hope you do. Obvious question, what is right? Again, he comes back at noon, 12 noon and 3 o'clock, and he does the same. Why does he keep coming back? Does he need the workers? No. Why does he keep coming back? He wants to give the workers what is right. That's what he's doing. He's telling you what he's like. He wants what? 
Does he get anything out of us at all? We're hopeless. We go in the vineyard, what do we do? We eat the grapes. <laughs> we set fire to the vineyard. We plant weeds. We're horrible. They keep coming back, get more of us. And then he gives us what is right. He wants us. That's what this is doing. The owner wants us. Again, he goes and he found others standing idle all day. And he wants them also. How much help are they going to give him? They're only going to work for an hour. And then I got to work. They're going to go and eat the grapes. He keeps coming back to get workers that he doesn't need. Why? Any rambling? God loves that we see. At least it's tribute to Abraham Lincoln. I'm going to add this tribute to What was the evidence that God loved that was doing for Because he made so many of us. Obviously, those are his favorites. But he comes after these workers and he does it and he does it and he does it over and over and over again. And he even finds something. I'm only going to go into it and stand around. And I ain't going to do anything. And they all go. They all go. The first group wants an agreement. But every group after that just goes believing that, that the owner is going to give them what is right. So, so far, everyone's got this figured out, I hope. And I hope that everyone of you have made the connection to Romans 1, 17. Have you done it? I'm not force-feeding it into you, but I'm hoping you're beginning to put together. I hope so. Hope you're doing it. Okay, some work for an agreement. Some work on the basis of what is right, the word of the landowner. Okay? The owner then, as we move along through the parable, we're not going to have time to really take it apart. We'll get it next week. The owner then has his messenger, his foreman, his steward, his messenger... Call the laborers. Who harvests, by the way? Who's doing the harvest, Matthew 13? Who comes and gathers everybody? Who does that? The messengers do that. You'll see that, Matthew 13, 41. You can figure out who the foreman is. And then he takes the eleventh hourers, the last ones, and they're given a denarius first. They got the blood First, How excited are they? They come in, nothing to do. They didn't do anything. Ate a few grapes, and they got a lifetime worth of blood. Pretty good, sweet deal, huh? And I hope you got that aha. I hope the aha hits you there. Now, the firsters. I got the lasters and I got the firsters. The firsters watch the lasters get their blood or get their denarius, get what is right. And they are watching that. And the the parable says that they supposed that they would receive more. We talked about this last week. How much does his blood cost? It costs a lot, infinite amount. It's infinite blood. It's the only source of life. You can't buy it. There's no way you can earn it. It's hopeless to get it unless what? He gives it to you. So this is blood by what? Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4. Blood by what? 
Grace and grace alone. You will be saved by grace and grace alone. It's got to be a gift or it isn't God's blood. But the firsters suppose that they're going to get more blood. What kind of doctrine is that? How much blood do you need? How many times do you need the blood? Oh, I've got to have the blood at least five, six times. i to store some up. Because why? They'll tell you. Why? They're going to hose their blood off. they got water. they got maybe they got a grinder. Now, I have seen some women to remove their makeup with some kind of power washing device. I've seen. So I know that. Some would think that that's necessary, but you can't get the blood off. It's his blood. You don't need but a small amount. You need a drop, if that. And it cleans you, and you don't need to clean yourself anymore. And you'll say, well, what about foot washing? That's sanctification. That's a whole different service, and we'll get to that. But anyway, the firsters supposed they would receive more. Obviously, the firsters did not know what the denarius was. They didn't know what a denarius was worth, and they didn't know what it did. And they complain. And what do they say to him, essentially? They say this. Say, you're not fair. Who are they saying it to? They're saying it to the owner. The owner is the possessor of all things, Genesis 14, 19, Genesis 14, 22. One of the titles of God, one of the titles of Christ is that he is the possessor of all things. And they are saying to him, you're not fair. You're not just. We deserve more. You deserve what? What do you deserve? You deserve death. You're standing before God telling him you deserve more. How you doing? You do them bad. Don't be a firster. Ultimately, if you're saying that God is not fair, you're accusing him of evil. You're saying he's evil. And you're saying he's unworthy of, to judge. Because if he's not fair, he can't judge anybody. And therefore, he can't end sin. And if he can't end sin, then he's not omnipotent. Down the road you go. Ultimately, you've destroyed the deity of Christ completely by saying you deserve more blood or you've got to have more blood or you need more blood. The first blood wasn't good enough. You didn't want it. You should have more than anybody else. I'm going to put it this way. How does this fit with Romans 3.1? What's the question of Romans 3.1? Somebody get brownie points. Without looking. What advantage is there to being a circumcised Jew? What are the laborers saying to the owner, the firsters? Hey, we came first. We worked in the sun. We worked harder than anybody else. We deserve more for our what? Work. Our work means we get more. What good is your work? What does he call your work? Filth. But you're saying, I'm working. I deserve more. And they're saying this. What advantage? If we're going to get the same as everybody else, if the Gentiles are going to get the same as the circumcised Jew, just because the Gentile believed, I actually got circumcised. You're gonna, what advantage then to the firsters to come into the vineyard? It's the same question, isn't it? It's the same question. The evening had come. What's the evening? The end had come. The end of the day, standing before the possessors of all things, 
The firsters demand more, and they accuse him of being wrong to give so graciously his blood. Have no position that in any way calls the grace of God evil, wrong, unjust, or unfair. Have no position that does that. If you find yourself in a position where you say the grace of God is not enough, we should have more. My effort has to be added to it. It isn't good enough. It won't last long enough. It can come and go. It can be washed off. You are in the position of the firsters at the end of the day. Okay? Much to wade through next week. The meaning, the exact meaning of what he says to them. Take what is yours and go your way. I don't think that's a good thing to hear that. Take what is yours and go your way. What is yours, by the way? What's his title? He's the possessor of all things. So what's he saying to them? Take nothing and go your way. I believe that they disobeyed his commandment to take the denarius. That's a John, 1 John 3 issue. They disobeyed his commandment to take the denarius. They disobeyed his commandment to believe in his name. I think that's where we're going to go next week. But we're going to end for now with, is it not lawful? That's what he says. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? That's a question that God asks. Who's his own things? That's us. We's a thing. He owns us. So here's your question. Does God have the right to rule over you? Does God have the right to judge his things? Then you have to answer that for yourself. You have to answer, does God have the right to rule over me? Does he have the right to judge me? He is the creator and the owner of me. Can he judge me? And for those who answer no, you are doomed. Doomed. For those who answer yes, come take your undeserved denarius, your blood. Okay, next week. Well. Go through her.